0: Miriam had dozed off again. Her sleep-heavy head lolled forward and slipped from the hand it was leaning on, waking her with a jolt and a stabbing, needle-like pain in her trapezius, which momentarily pinned her right ear to her shoulder. She pinched the meaty part between her neck and shoulder tightly with her thumb and index finger. The pain was both sickening and delicious. She needed to call it a night. She shut down the computer... Packed her camera into its bag and placed the admission records and their scraps of fabric back into their cabinets with all the care a mother would give a newborn. These items were as precious to her as they were to the children they belonged to hundreds of years ago. Because these fabric scraps weren't just an archive of a time in our history, each token held the story of two lives, inseparably weaved together but unequivocally torn apart. Each tiny piece of fabric represented the bond between mother and child, and the sacrifices they made for the hope of a better life. Miriam's mother died just hours after she was born. The memories she had of her were not her own, but other people's, photographs of a woman from another time, one where she did not exist. She was raised by her grandmother, Sylvia, who worked hard to preserve her mother's memory And who had instilled in her an unshakable sense of family loyalty and a keen interest in history. To Miriam, her work digitizing the archive of the Corum Foundling Hospital, keeping these stories of these heroic mothers alive, was less of a job and more of a calling. But for tonight, she needed to sleep. Checking, then checking again that everything was safely locked away. She flicked off the light switch and plodded heavily down the corridor. After just a few steps, she hesitated. Had she definitely locked the cabinets? Yes, she had, and she checked afterwards to make sure. She continued, but after another few steps she hesitated again. What was she forgetting? She tried to ignore the feeling nagging at her and carry on, but after her third hesitation, she turned around to start back on herself and found at her feet a yellowing scrap of fabric, frayed at its edges. She had never seen this specimen before, she was sure of it, but she knew it could only have come from the archive. It must have gotten attached to her coat somehow when she was putting things away. She wouldn't normally touch anything from the archive without gloves, but as she didn't have any on her person, she delicately picked up the fabric scrap and clasped it in her fingers. All of a sudden, Miriam felt a creeping cold slip from her palm, all the way up her arm, seeping through her body like damp. The familiar corridor darkened around her, and the smell of wood burning snaked into her lungs. She panicked, thinking the building was on fire, and swooped around ready to run down the corridor towards the main doors, but was stopped, dead. A hulking, dark figure towered over her. She could barely see his face in the darkness, but his skin was swarthy, his black beard was coarse and matted, and his eyes gleamed smoky grey from under the brim of a grimy top hat. She could smell the sourness of stale beer on his breath and the days-old sweat on his clothes. Fearing for her life, Miriam shrank backwards, raising her open palms in surrender. As the fabric scrap slipped from her hand, The familiar corridor, with its harsh strip-lighting and musty smell of old books, returned in an instant. She span on the spot, looking all around her, but the man, the darkness, the smoke, all of it had vanished. She bent down to pick up the scrap of fabric, but hesitated before she touched it again. It was just a hallucination, she told herself. You're just exhausted and your mind is playing tricks on you. But unwilling to risk another waking nightmare, Miriam carefully picked the fabric from the floor with a tissue, wrapped it up and warily made her way back to the archive to lock it away. Everyone at the Foundling Hospital had heard the legend of the Coram Man. Some believed he was a baby killer. Some believed he was just a shady traveller trying to make a quick buck from desperate women. Some believed he wasn't real at all. On the long walk back to her flat in the crisp night air, she couldn't shake the horrible stories of the Coram Man from her mind. She knew she sounded crazy, but she was convinced that the vision that she saw had to have been him. When she finally fell through the door of her studio flat, it almost felt like his shadow was there in the room with her. She slept with the lights on that night. Living in London, she could easily have taken the underground to work, but Miriam had always preferred the walk, even though it took her the best part of an hour. She admired the unmistakable Victorian architecture of Holloway where she lived, taking in the impressive details, picturing the opulent lifestyles of the people who once lived inside these houses. It was what drew her there in the first place, But she would inevitably be sucked into daydreams about the disgraced women, for they were the ones she felt close to. She imagined the reality of life for the ones whose names she saw scrawled into record books, alongside bits of tattered fabric and disintegrating lace. She thought of their shock, their desperation, their last glimmer of hope. She wondered how many of them had died on these streets, never knowing what became of their babies. Despite her tiredness, she felt her purpose renewed as she headed into work. As she walked the long, echoey corridor to the archives, her skin rippled with goosebumps. She pulled down her sleeves until they almost covered her hands and fought against the memory of the previous night. Instead, she put it down to the fact that the archive was intentionally kept cool and free of natural daylight, in order to best preserve the specimens. As she reached her office and dumped her bag, laptop and camera onto her desk, Miriam froze, stunned to see the yellowing scrap of fabric from the night before on her desk. She had wrapped it up and locked it away. She knew she had, and as far as she was aware, nobody else had access to this part of the archive. But there it was, laid out, like it had been put there specifically for her to see. She thought again of the horrifying, shadowy figure and realised she had been holding her breath. Using her sleeve, she swept the fabric scrap into an envelope and locked it in a drawer, promising herself that she would try and reunite it with its owner in the course of her work. Still visibly unsettled, she went to get a coffee to try and steady her nerves. Her work was methodical, almost rhythmic, and it was easy to switch off and simply go through the motions. But the more she tried to ignore it, the more that little piece of fabric became like an itch that she needed to scratch. Digitising the archive was her job, one she couldn't afford to waste time on with an immovable deadline looming. But each of these records were complete. Mother, child and their woven bond would all be immortalised in a few clicks. This decaying little scrap didn't know who it belonged to. Much, she imagined, like the baby it was pinned to. For all the hope contained within its walls, the foundling hospital had been shrouded with a darkness that loomed like a shadow behind every child. While she couldn't reunite their family, she could at least reunite the fabric with its rightful record before its memory was lost forever. Considering the fragility of the specimen, and the fact that it had been exposed to light and air for too long, she didn't have much time. It was 9.38 already, hours after she should have finished for the day, but Miriam had already resigned herself to another late night. She carefully removed the fabric from the drawer where she had stashed it earlier and unfolded it on her desk. The hospital admitted around 150 babies each year, each with a petition letter from its mother and a token. With no information other than this ratty little scrap, Miriam had no idea where to start on finding the right record. Tired and dejected, she rested her forehead on the desk. Just like the night before, she felt that slippery, cold feeling, but this time on her head, scuttling down her face, her neck and into her spine. She heard voices arguing from another room. A woman's voice. She was shrill and furious, shouting someone's name. Miriam squeezed her eyes shut and concentrated on the distant sound. The voices were echoey, distorted, but she could hear the woman yelling the name Mary. Or was it Marie? No, it was Mary. Mary... Hawkins... As the name became clear, that cold, sick feeling intensified. It was as though a shadow had been cast over her, blocking out the light, and she knew it was him. The Corum Man. Miriam bolted upright with a sharp intake of breath to find herself where she had been the entire time. At her desk, alone. The scrap of fabric now with a tiny wrinkle where she'd accidentally laid her head down on it. She checked her watch. 10.06. She couldn't tell whether she was hallucinating or whether she had fallen asleep on her desk and sunk into a nightmare. But Miriam was frightening herself. She needed a break. She slipped the scrap back into the drawer, promising that she would look into it next week before scolding herself for talking to an inanimate piece of fabric and heading out into the clammy Saturday night air. Sunday was always Miriam's day off. She religiously spent it visiting her grandmother in the care home. Most of the time their visits would involve Nanny Sylvie slurping a cup of tea with far too many sugars in it, before drifting off as Miriam recounted the details of her work. Sometimes Sylvie would pull out an envelope of old photos, and tell Miriam stories about her mother, That she'd heard a hundred times over, and Miriam listened as though hearing them for the very first time. But that day, as Miriam told her how she'd worked into the night, and had this horrible nightmare about a woman called Mary Hawkins, Sylvie seemed unexpectedly alert. As Miriam finished, Nanny Sylvie paused for a moment, then said the strangest thing. Mary Hawkins, that was your great-great-great-grandmother's name. Miriam sighed heavily and reminded Sylvie that her great-great-great-grandmother's name was Nellie Booth. "'That's what she told everyone,' Sylvie said with the utmost conviction. "'But her real name was Mary Hawkins, and she wasn't even from London. "'She was born in Gloucestershire. "'She drove herself mad trying to find her missing daughter, but she'd only ever had boys. "'Poor soul.'" "'Nan, how do you know this?' Miriam asked." almost incredulously your ancestors will talk to you if you listen at this Miriam felt nauseous Nanny Sylvie had drifted from lucidity back to the faraway place she usually occupied but those words pierced the fog in her brain like a laser could it be her Mary Hawkins and was she trying to communicate with her somehow the hairs on Miriam's forearms stood up on end She made a brisk excuse to Nanny Sylvie's nurse, scooped up her things and marched for the door. When she arrived at work, the building was, thankfully, deserted, save for the weekend security guard, who barely acknowledged her presence. In her office, she logged into the census records and searched for Nellie Booth. She found her without issue, but there was no trace of a Nellie Booth in London, or anywhere for that matter, until she was 21 years old. But just like Nanny Sylvie said, she found the birth records of a Mary Hawkins from a farm in Gloucestershire. She was registered as a servant living at a country manor house when she was 11 years old. By the next survey, she had disappeared. The pieces slotted together so conveniently, Miriam felt like she was merely willing it into a coherent story to quell her curious mind but then she saw it. That scrap of yellow fabric was there, on her desk, again. Your ancestors will talk to you if you listen. Driven by fervour or delusion, she wasn't sure which, Miriam slid the fabric towards her, picked it up and gripped it tightly in her hand. Immediately, she was overwhelmed by darkness, an oppressive, smothering darkness. Her skin itched her face felt like it was pressed against damp wood, and the crying, all she could hear were babies crying and whimpering. But as her eyes adjusted to the dark, looming over her like an executioner, stood the quorum Man. She dropped the fabric, gasping for breath, her entire body shivering like she'd been plunged into freezing water. "'What is it you're trying to show me?' Miriam yelled. "'What do you want?' The sound of her own voice echoed around the old room, embarrassing her. She grabbed the fabric again, fighting tears. But this time, everything was quiet. Miriam was up on a rooftop. The night sky glowed indigo, the full, round moon silhouetting the trees as though they were cut out of paper. Mary was sitting just in front, her coffee-brown hair tucked lazily into a white bonnet with tendrils spiralling out. She gazed dreamily at the sky, her arms wrapped protectively around her middle, until a boy dressed in trousers embroidered with gold and a thin loose white shirt scrambled across the roof and sat down next to her. From behind his back, he produced a brown paper bag with a smattering of greasy spots on it and handed it to Mary. Coconut ice, my favourite! Mary beamed at him, but the boy stared intently to spot, far away in the distance. What's wrong? They know, Mary. Know what? Her face wrinkled into a frown. They know everything. Me. You. Your... condition. He drew in a deep breath, before looking directly at her with a practised, steely look in his eyes. I've come to say goodbye. They're fetching you a carriage into Gloucester. Tonight, I'm sorry. Then he scuttled away and disappeared into the flickering amber glow of Mary's bedroom window. She sat, catatonic, for a long while, looking down into the bag of coconut ice cradled in her lap. Even the sound of hooves clopping up the road below did not rouse her only the sound of her name being bellowed from the bowels of the house. Miriam followed behind, unseen and unheard, as Mary shuffled towards the window and swung her legs inside. In her room, another young housemaid was waiting for her. She embraced Mary so forcefully that her bonnet slipped from her head, letting her ashy blonde hair tumble down her back. Mary's bag of coconut ice was crushed between their two bodies. The other maid took Mary firmly by the shoulders and looked her dead in the eyes. You can't go to him, she said in a low whisper. I have to, Mary replied. No, Mary don't, she exclaimed before catching herself and returning to a whisper. You've heard what he does. We all have, and they found those bones. Mary's name rang through the house again. She pressed the bag of coconut ice into the other housemaid's hands and softly pushed her to one side. My carriage awaits. The ride into Gloucester was rough, uncomfortable and damp. Every bump in the road sent Mary a pallid shade of green as she swallowed down the nausea. Miriam had almost dozed off from the motion of the carriage when Mary thrust her head from the window and called for the driver to stop outside a grimy-looking coaching inn. After disembarking, she waited for her ride to trundle out of sight before sneaking around the carts parked up outside. Miriam assumed she was looking to steal some coins, hoping to find enough to get her a room for the night. But very quickly, it became clear that Mary wasn't interested in money. She rifled through the trunks and fished around underneath seats, increasingly frustrated, "'until she stumbled upon one particular cart. "'The wood looked damp with a greenish tinge "'and had a foul smell, like it had been carrying animals. "'Mary heaved herself up into the driver's seat "'and felt around under the blankets. "'Momentarily she froze, "'before prizing a small battered leather purse "'out from a slit in one of the cushions. "'She tipped the contents into her palm "'and an audible gasp escaped her lungs.' as she looked down at the ornate pearl locket ring in her hand. She quickly stuffed the ring into her dress, hid the wallet back where she had found it, and marched into the inn. The landlord looked her up and down disdainfully as she approached the bar, before nodding towards a dim corner where a figure sat with his back to the room. As Mary approached, Miriam began to tremble. The terrifying shadow figure from her visions was the same man they were approaching. Mary sat, uninvited, at his table, her swollen stomach showing under her dress. As he looked at her from under the brim of his hat, his eyes looked like craters, and the scar bisecting his lower lip resembled a deep canyon. He smiled a grisly smile, exposing a mouthful of blackened, stumpy teeth, and told Mary his fee for alleviating her little problem. But his countenance turned even darker when Mary slid the ring across the table. The hulking man lunged at Mary, slamming his hands onto the table. Several of the other patrons rose and started towards them, so the man raised his palms in defeat and sank back into his seat. Mary spoke slowly and steadily. She knew the family that the ring belonged to, She knew that it had been tied with a pink ribbon to the baby they had forced their eldest daughter to give up. And if he didn't help her, she would make sure the family knew that the so-called Coram Man had stolen their heirloom and that the baby never even made it out of Gloucester, let alone to the foundling hospital in London. The Coram Man seethed. With eyes all around him, he couldn't make a scene without attracting unwanted attention. So Mary made her demand that he take her to the Foundling Hospital in London to deliver her infant herself, and he had no choice but to resentfully agree. He drained the foamy remnants of his glass, pushed himself up from the table with a squeal of wood on tiles, and clicked his fingers at Mary. They were leaving. Now. The man shoved Mary into the back of the filthy cart with trunks and sacks of goodness knows what. He threw a rough blanket over her and told her not to move or make a sound unless he told her to. She lay on her side and protectively wrapped her arms around her belly as the rickety cart thundered off down the road. After what felt like hours, the rhythmic clattering of the horse's hooves lulled them to sleep. Miriam woke in complete darkness. The cart wasn't moving and everything was silent but she could see the Coram Man hovering over Mary's blanket-covered body. "'If you're going to murder me, just get on with it,' she spat. He whipped the blanket from her, dragged her onto her back and bent down over her, holding a knife above her chest. But his hands were shaking, and sweat dripped down from him onto Mary's face and chest. She looked death straight in the eyes, and all he could do was turn his shameful face away. For all the stories about him, all the fear Miriam had felt towards him, the Coram man was nothing but a coward. He threw the blanket at her bitterly, slunk back to the driver's seat, and beat the horses into a gallop. Before Miriam or Mary could gather their wits from their sleep-deprived days, the cart had stopped without warning. The corum man pulled the blanket from Mary and told her to get out. Mary, squinting in the daylight, gave him a perplexed look. In the dark he seemed hulking and shadowy, but in the morning sunlight he was hunched, overweight and grubby. Mary asked him where they were, but he told her again to get out, the whole time staring downwards, refusing to meet the intensity of her gaze. As she landed on the pavement directly in front of him and lifted her face to look at him, all he could do was turn away. He hauled himself into the driver's seat and whipped the horses to walk on. They were in London, this much Miriam could tell, but this wasn't the foundling hospital. Mary was filthy, starving, lost, and the second the Coram man was out of sight... She hunched over her swollen stomach with fear and pain flushing her face. She gulped down her discomfort and did her best to waddle down the street, looking for any sign of sanctuary. She stumbled upon a nearby church and took shelter in the graveyard, propping herself up against a weathered headstone, her face now contorted with pain. This was it. It had to be. But Miriam was utterly helpless, Stuck in this bizarre, spectral form. She curled into a ball and buried her face into her lap, terrified of the scene that was about to unfold. She could hear Mary's desperate cries, despite her attempts to block them out, but the most agonizing sound was the silence that followed them. Miriam gingerly uncovered her head to see Mary cradling a tiny body. They both held their breath, waiting. The next sound they heard was a choir erupting into song from the church. Miriam knew this music. It was Handel. He was a patron of the Foundling Hospital. She didn't believe in God, but she was sure it was a sign. And at that, Mary's tiny, bluish baby thrust itself into life with a scream that was both blood-curdling and glorious. And Mary wept. Within seconds, she had been swept up into a blanket and ushered into the safety of the church. There was a whirlwind of people around her. They fetched clean clothes for Mary, cleaned the baby with holy water, announced it was a girl, and said she was a miracle sent from God. They promised they would help her get her precious child to the foundling hospital. The vicar even offered to write her petition letter and accompany her there. Perhaps due to his influence, Mary's daughter was admitted later that day, before she had even had chance to give her a name. Abruptly, Miriam was back at her desk, the fabric scrap still in her hand, but the visions had dissipated. She knew what she had to do. She found the documents far more quickly than she had anticipated, and she read both the names aloud. Mary Hawkins and her daughter, who had been christened Theodora. The second the name left her lips, she felt the balmy summer heat envelop her body, like sinking into a warm bath. She peeled off her jumper and scraped her hair off the back of her neck, which was already moist with perspiration. She pulled at the fabric of her T-shirt to fan herself before opening her eyes and sitting back upright to check that someone hadn't turned on the heating by mistake. Panic struck her almost as intensely as the heat. The scrap of fabric was gone, leaving nothing, not even a thread, behind.